are listening to the Ontario Council for International Cooperation's Tapestry 2030 podcast series, focused on the future of international cooperation and global solidarity, and the partnerships needed for gender-transformative, sustainable development. My name is Eliana, and I'm your host. I can't believe Season 2 is already upon us. OCIC is so excited to launch Season 2 of this podcast series, and in this season, we're placing an extra focus on localization and development. We are going to be hearing stories from policy experts as well as our members and their partners working on the ground in the Global South. To kickstart this season, I am pleased to welcome Brian Tomlinson and Marlene Mundaka both policy experts, to help us get a deeper understanding of what localization is. Welcome, Brian, and welcome, Marlene, to our podcast today. We'd love it if you could introduce yourselves to our audience by telling us a little bit about your passions and your work and how it relates to the theme of our podcast today. Well, uh, thank you so much, Eliana, for, um, first of all, the invitation to participate in, in this conversation. Um, so a little bit about myself. I mean, what motivates me to be to uh, about this particular topic uh, is I think my my longstanding and and deep belief that social change is possible, uh, and that solutions are always uh, more likely to succeed and be sustainable mm-hmm. if they are the product of um, local thinking, design, and leadership. Um, this thinking, I think, is in part uh, a product of, of my own longstanding work in the field of international development, of human rights. I've, I've been in, in doing this kind of work for just over 25 years and wow. started off um, uh, working with refugees in Central America and then moved to Chile and worked on issues uh, in, in the southern cone of Bolivia, Peru and Chile of uh, issues of food security and violence against women. And then, you know, lastly, I, I've been involved in, in, uh, in the field of looking at child rights in particular over the last um, a couple of decades. So that combined with my own personal history of being a Latin American who was displaced at a young age uh, from her home country of Chile due to violence and political upheaval really shaped um, my thinking and my mm-hmm. longstanding commitment to, to, the, to the issues of human rights, but also, as I said, um, my deep belief that social change is possible. Uh, localization for me, uh, this issue in particular, is a deeply political issue. Uh, and it has to do with power and challenging structures. Uh, and, and and shifting power imbalances. And, and I'm excited that we're having this conversation today because it is so deeply political. It's not a technocratic kind of check the boxes kind of exercise. And I believe that this particular moment, uh, th- there's a lot of momentum behind the idea of this change. Absolutely. Um, so maybe I'll leave it there. Yes, I, I love I love that your life as much as what's happening in the world today is driving your passion to work specifically on localization. I loved I loved your introduction. Thank you so much, Brian. Yes, uh, well, thank uh, Elena for inviting me as well to to this conversation. I think I share with uh, Marlene the the importance of this, and I share her perspectives that it is a <clears throat> deeply political agenda. And, and for me, it's uh, I've been working uh, slightly longer than Marlan in this area since uh, 1973, in fact, when I, I joined Oxfam Canada and have worked with Oxfam and with QSO and in the last 
15, 20 years, I worked with um, the Canadian Council International Cooperation. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, this agenda of localization has been with me uh, throughout this journey. And Oxfam, we, uh, in the 1970s, we were talking about the the notion of what we called partage, meaning uh, sharing among equals, but uh, Mm -hmm. trying to define what equals meant in uh, a civil society aid relationship at the time. Uh, We struggled around that, uh, but we also found ways of of making it real. And uh, I recall uh, really important work that we did in support of solidarity with the Dene in the Northwest Territories around uh, the the pipeline that was being proposed at the time and and making linkages with Mm -hmm. uh, liberation movements in, in Southern Africa. And so that, that interest has continued uh, through these, these many years. Uh, in the 1990s, uh, where I really shifted towards policy work uh, full time, I became involved in a network that was called the Reality of Aid. That was really a European uh, NGO initiative that invited a few uh, colleagues from the South to participate uh, by writing uh, a a piece for an annual report. And over several years with colleagues, particularly from Latin America, we managed to shift that structure to be a Southern-led policy network on aid. And it it continues to to this day to to be one. And, And that was very important because what the reality of aid was talking about was the reality of aid and who best to speak to that than, than Southern colleagues. Mm-hmm. And finally, I guess the, the other, the last thing that really has uh, brought home for me this, these issues is my work uh, around civil society development effectiveness, improving the ways in which we uh, as development actors are making change in the world. And I was very much involved in the development of what are called the Istanbul Principles, for civil society development effectiveness. And among those are uh, a a principle around human rights, but also a principle around around equitable partnerships. And uh, since 2010, we've been working intensely to bring attention to these principles, but also work with uh, colleagues, both in the North and the South, in, in bringing home the, the realities of our work more consistently with, with the principles. But the last point I, I would make, and, and maybe it leads into the, the importance of this conversation, is that we were also monitoring the, uh, the implementation of those principles. And in the last round, which I uh, summarized for, uh, for colleagues, we asked civil society in 48 uh, countries mm-hmm. how they felt about uh, the implementation of equitable partnerships. And close to 80% of the respondents, and these are Southern civil society, said that they continued to experience their partnerships as individual projects, which are largely the expression of the financing CSO program interests in the North. So yes, you know, we have a lot of experience, I think, over these years and much to draw upon, but uh, that, that statistic brought home to me that we still have a long road to, to haul. So hence the importance of our discussion today. 
Absolutely. I also like how your work and your experience has cross-cutting um, presence in policy and in civil society and human rights and AIDS and AIDS, sorry. And I feel like um, we are, this is actually an excellent way to like segue into my next question, which is what is your understanding of the meaning of localization based on all of this work that you've done in so many different thematic areas and why um, do you both think, why do you think it's being contested in certain contexts? I mean, the term localization is very loaded, right? And I, I kind of, I'm hoping that our listeners today can take away um, more of an understanding of the layers to localization. So what do you believe are the layers of localization? What is a meaning or an understanding of localization that we can cultivate? Yeah, well, for me and in, in my experience, um, localization, as we call it today, uh, depends really on where you sit in the aid relationship, and the civil society aid relationship in particular. So for uh, colleagues from the Global South, uh, from civil society in the Global South, it's clearly about shifting power and agency to civil society in the South. They wish to be development actors in their own right, and, and just as we do. Mm-hmm. And, and for them, that means that, <clears throat> excuse me, that they have control over their own decision-making about what are the relevant priorities for their work and their program, that their partnerships are those that are structured around their priorities that they are in the best position to determine, and that they are the ones who are providing leadership both at their own country level, of course, although that's sometime, sometimes in question, but also at the, at the regional and global level. So it's really about shifting power from their point of view. Mm-hmm. From the Northern point of view, in my experience, there's varieties of, of, of attitudes towards uh, localization, but I think the predominant one is, as I mentioned in my intro, it's about equitable partnerships. Right. And, and clearly, you know, uh, the best of the work here has tried to ameliorate the worst aspects of unequal power uh, within these relationships, often based on, obviously, the command of money. Uh, but you know, nevertheless, these partnerships continue to exist within the aid system. And this aid system uh, is one that is Northern driven, it's driven by Northern interests in terms of uh, the development agenda often. It's also, as as I mentioned, driven by the power of money. And and so the perspectives may be different and and also the approaches are going to be different. So in the North, we talk more about reforming our partnerships, bringing more control within these partnerships to the global south. But in the south, what I've heard, particularly among policy-oriented CSOs, is that it's about transforming that relationship so that the the center of that relationship is located in the south and that we in the north are subsidiary to it. And there is a lot to talk about about what that transformation means. But I don't don't think so much that it's contested as is there is different uh, attitudes and perspectives from where we sit in that relationship. And we can explore that a bit more in in the conversation. 
Yeah, for me, I don't know. I mean, I I, I don't know whether it, it is contested. I mean, I, I in many ways, I I think, uh, I guess, depending on on your understanding of <laughs> what contested means, definitely, mm-hmm. I think that there is, um, you know, picking up on Brian's point, uh, uh, a different, a very strong, different perspective, and you know, that is really challenging um, the idea that it's, it it is just this like, this this, um, this uh, reform uh, of the system that's required, but it, it is a more uh, deeply transformative agenda that uh, is very much linked to this idea that, th- that we need a new model for international development of humanitarian aid that really, that, that is very much connected to an anti-racist agenda that's mm-hmm. very much connected to this whole idea of decolonizing aid uh, and that in order to really transform, you need to challenge uh, the ideological premises of, of uh, international aid altogether. Um, and that we need to be challenging our, and changing our current ways of thinking and doing that have been normalized for decades, right? That it's very much about structural racism that's deeply embedded in our everyday culture and work practices. Absolutely. And so based on this, to follow up on this, uh, what do you think are some of the biggest opportunities and the challenges you see facing localization and the localization agenda today in Canada and internationally, specifically within the context of COVID-19, the global pandemic that continues? Well, I think uh, Marlan picked up a a very important point and made it very explicit that it's about transforming the aid system per se. And if that's true, that's a mammoth challenge um, and and probably one that's beyond kind of the the purview of any one national set of uh, NGOs in Canada or or in, uh, in Tanzania or wherever. It's it's going to be have to be a, a very uh, deep collective effort, and and so you know we can look at steps in in moving in that direction, but but really to to pick up a bit more on 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 some of the challenges per se, they're clearly internal. So Marlene has already referred to you know the issues of of structural racism. I think also there are patterns of partnership that uh, we have developed over over years that are important to us and and to partners. Uh, And there's real strong organizational stakes in these partnerships. And so they are difficult to move. There are, I think, really, uh, not just in Canada, but throughout the North, uh, the ways in which we engage Canadians in this work, which really has been around a charitable model that that we are the givers and the others are the beneficiaries and all of the attitudes that support that Mm. structures the way in which we then behave and engage as development actors and limits us uh, in that regard because you know we must be truthful to to our donors Uh, and if we're working within that model and not a solidarity model that affects how we uh, communicate and therefore act. It's also, I think, um, limited because of the complexities of our organizations uh, that have grown over over time. But 
some of the other aspects of challenges relate to the external ones, and, and we can't underestimate these, particularly, as I said, and, and Marlena said, that we're dealing with the reform of the aid system itself in many ways. So as it affects this agenda in Canada, we have regulations in the in the government that says that as a, a development actor in Canada, as a CSO, we must always have command and control over the money that we provide to a partner in the South, which means that we actually own that work in a technical sense. And, and therefore, you know, this is very challenging if one wants to establish more equitable partnership relationships. Mm-hmm. Increasingly over this decade, we have in Canada in particular moved into calls for proposals. So we've created a, a competitive environment in which we kind of compete for, for resources, often based on a profile that the government of Canada establishes, not our partners. We've moved away from core funding. And and lastly, I would draw our attention to the importance of of closing civic space in the the global south, where uh, the organizations, many of them in which we work, and particularly human rights defenders, are being threatened both physically and and politically and and organizationally um, by forces within their own government and, and outside. We must remember that development is is really often very contested in 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 all parts of the world, and particularly in the ones we work with. And so, as space shrinks, it's it's much more difficult to establish uh, open uh, and constructive partnerships that meet the uh, the principles that we we want to define for them. Yeah, maybe picking up on on some of Brian's points around the, uh, the opportunities and challenges. In terms of opportunities, I do think that this is we're living in a kind of a, a unique moment uh, that kind of brought together, you know, two uh, two streams, if you will, or, or and has created in many ways kind of for me a perfect storm. Um, number one was kind of like the, the global kind of uprisings around race and, and you know, and it, that started in the U.S., but kind of became this global uh, uproar um, of people calling attention to, you know, racial uh, inequality, uh, violence, injustice, and, and then um, which, which then became very much part of the conversations internally across uh, all of the international aid sector. So whether you are part of a large NGO to a smaller uh, uh, organization, everyone was talking about race uh, and how race uh, um, plays out in the, in the workplace. And then of course, COVID happened. And COVID also has required a complete shift in, in the ways of working of many organizations because you know expats had to leave and then we had to rely uh, you know, explicitly and, and overtly on local actors to actually continue to deliver uh, programs uh, and, 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 you know, do the service delivery of, of, of many of the projects, whether humanitarian right. or development. So th- those two things, I think, have created, you know, an opportunity for us to really question ourselves, to question um, the, the way we work um, in, in, in this moment. So I, I do think that it's, it's a special moment and it's called into question many of the things that Brian was talking about. For me, particularly coming out of a large INGO, 
um, the question of how much we've grown, like the bureaucracy of an INGO, how we become these huge superstructures that are very hard to dismantle. And, and we have a very hard time giving up power mm-hmm. and giving up control over resources. As, uh, and even though in principle, I think, you know, uh, everyone agrees uh, that, you know, local uh, is, localization is about initiatives and programs that are owned and led by people working in their own contexts. Uh, you know, we've kind of twisted and, and um, interpreted local in sometimes in ways that are, are convenient and self-serving um, mm-hmm. because it is so hard to dismantle, you know, our structures and to dismantle our ways of doing and, 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 and thinking because it's connected to our colonial legacy, but it's also connected to the business, to the business of, of being part of this big bureaucracies that are, are multi-million dollar businesses for many big, big INGOs. Maybe just to uh, pick up with a bit of my own experience around that. Uh, if you talk about something that is contested, I think one thing that is very much contested, although below the surface often, is the growing presence of INGOs across the world in developing countries. There's been, in a sense, a shift to power, but the shift to power has been within the INGO. And, and I've heard very explicitly uh, in private conversations from significant civil society leaders uh, across uh, the global south that this is displacing the leadership of of local IN, uh, local NGOs and CSOs in their own processes. Mm-hmm. Not that the, the staff of INGOs are not uh, nationals of these countries, but you know there there creates tension on the ground. And I think some of this localization agenda is, is uh, built, is arising from that experience that has been going on now for probably about 15 years or so. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, Brian, because I think uh, even though the grand bargain, which was you know hailed as a major outcome of the 2016 humanitarian summit, you know, and with a big commitment around allocating at least 25% of, of funds to local and national actors, the the you know five years onwards, you know, one of the things that has been the biggest disappointment is that we haven't seen that allocation of resources as was committed at the time to local and national actors and the, and and that the definition of local became contested or you know kind of uh, reshaped post uh, summit uh, mostly by INGOs who who wanted who argued that local actually included national country offices and and right. so therefore you know you create a sense of competition uh, with with global southern actors and um, for and for them, you know, those those um, those offices uh, are really a visible uh, manifestation of 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 the of the unwillingness of INGOs to give up power, but also a manifestation of structural racism. I I can in, in terms of risks, I see the issue of risk and the attempts to minimize it alongside corruption and program failure as very much part of this, um, I would call it codification and professionalization of the aid system that has taken place over the last two decades. Um, People talk about it as the technocratization of the aid sector. Mm. Uh, There's this big emphasis on results 
effectiveness, uh, uh, and in creating these very complex administrative norms and processes, um, which you know many times go alongside really unachievable benchmarks, right? We all know about results frameworks and logic frameworks. And so it, it's a very complex um, uh, technical skill to work uh, in, this, in this sector nowadays. Um, but I think in many ways, the, this whole um, administrative structure that's been built around aid um, has been uh, justified and the rationale has been around managing and mitigating risks. Uh, and I think in part, uh, it, it has created um, huge barriers for many Southern organizations, um, whether because they don't, their English isn't good enough, uh, because English is the dominant language, um, because they just don't have the, you know, the skills, and I put skills kind of in quotation marks, uh, as defined by the North and Northern donors and Northern INGOs mm -hmm. that are required to be able to meet the threshold. Um, and, and, and therefore you, you create a system uh, where uh, many, you know, some NGOs uh, and including some Southern NGOs qualify um, to compete uh, in this new system and many others that do not, even though they might be doing amazing work on the ground, even though they're best placed because they understand the realities of their context, they, they just can't compete uh, because they don't have all of these uh, sets of skills or governance structures or administrative systems that we require in order to be able to function in the current aid system. Brian, is there anything you'd like to add to that? No, I think uh, Marilyn has hit it right on. I think mean, those are uh, some of the the major issues, and it 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 yes marginalizes significant proportions of of uh, the sector in in the global south. Um, to be clear, I mean there are hundreds of thousands of organizations in the global south that do not and have no relationship to the aid system, and uh, and that is. Uh, you know that that's good, um, but I think you know what we're talking about here is those aspects of the aid system that can energize, as Marlene said at the beginning, change at the country level, and and I think you know the, there is experience and um, example of of uh, relationships of solidarity, north south that actually catalyze and, and are synergistic with change in the global south and, you know, benefit all partners and all sides. But, you know, as Marlon said, if we make this a bureaucratic, as we've done over the last 20 years, I think we move further and further away from that potential. So based on everything that's already been said, I'm wondering if this agenda has a different impact on international non-governmental organizations or INGOs and small and medium-sized organizations? Does it impact them differently? And if so, in what ways, what might these differences mean in moving forward? Marlene, let's start with you. Um, I, I do think that uh, a small or medium organizations um, just based on, on, on what I've heard over the last couple of years, particularly from Canadian uh, uh, 
small medium sized organizations is that they have an they they because in many uh, in, in many instances they don't have the same types of relationships or dependencies with uh, institutional donors and particularly uh, Global Affairs Canada, um, they have uh, greater flexibility uh, to be able to uh, establish and develop different kinds of relationships uh, with their partners. Um, in many instances, they, they are able to move away from this very transactional type of relationship that is project-based, that's defined by you get project money, and there's a beginning and an end to the relationship and, and, and then you're done unless you get new funding to you know, continue a phase two. So, which is very much um, part of redefining uh, you know, relationships mm -hmm. so that they are, uh, they're not just project-based but you actually establish longer term partnerships uh, and which allow you know, Southern partners to um, be able to uh, develop, grow, uh, and, and, and uh, in the areas in which they feel that they need to, to develop and grow. Um, so I do feel like, you know, there's, there's an opportunity for, um, for small, medium organizations to kind of, in many ways, pave the way and, and document mm -hmm. and, and, um, and systematize their experiences for others to be, to, to look at and learn from. I think international INGOs, there's definitely in principle uh, uh, a, a, an understanding of the issues and a desire to, to, to move towards supporting uh, this change. But the difficulty is that there are huge structures. I, I call them, in my mind, it's like the Titanic, right? And you're trying <laughs> to move this huge, this huge ship, like to make yes. it pivot. And it's very, very hard to engage you know, when you're talking about, you know, communications teams and policy teams and, you know, branding teams and you, you have your finance teams and, you know, your logistics teams and, and you have all of these parts of this organization trying to move them as one. Um, you know, you have your humanitarian team and your development teams and people working on peace building. And in and, and, and many instances, you know, to bring everyone together as, as people is very difficult, but then the structures themselves that have been developed and the processes are also very difficult to change. Mm -hmm. and, and, and ultimately it is an ideological uh, also challenge because I think we've, we've, we've had this idea that we're doing good, right? You know, everyone right. that's yeah. in development, it's where we're, we believe that, you know, uh, we have the best interest of people at heart and, and we're doing good, right? It's this, it's this white savior mentality mm. that people talk about, right? right? But ultimately I think we really need to challenge our, our, our ways of thinking because I think it's this idea that we have some sort of truth, but we have the capacity that our ways of doing are kind of mm -hmm. superior to others is, is what exactly what we need to be challenging and is very much part of this reform. Um, so I think INGOs have a bit of a tougher job because their whole business models are built around, you know, having big, you know, you know, superstructures at head offices, wherever they might sit. Right. And then you have these governance models where, you know, these country offices are, you know, are basically, you know, despite them having maybe, you know, local leadership, and they might have local, lots of all of their staff being local, if, if their directives and their strategy is coming from the north, then they're not, you know, they would not mm -hmm. be defined as local. 
right? Right. Uh, so I think this, these are the tensions and, and dismantling all of that, you can imagine, is a huge uh, mammoth job. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the biggest challenge for INGOs right now. Yeah, and I think uh, we uh, or I did some research uh, with uh, the provincial council and territorial councils a few years ago on the um, the effectiveness of, of small and medium sized NGOs. And I think uh, what Marlene said at, in, at the beginning of her answers here uh, really resonates because I think that came out of the uh, the results of this more uh, detailed study that was based on evaluations of, mm -hmm. of some of these organizations. But I think also that if we take seriously, and I do, the challenge that we're, we're facing a transformative agenda here, one that transforms the aid system as a whole, exactly. then I think it's clear that small and medium-sized organizations will be challenged in terms of their resource and, and just uh, human capacities to, to engage in that uh, because that will take a very sustained effort. To me, um, that part of the agenda really has to be, I, I think it will come from the global south. Uh, we can, and I experience it uh, as I work uh, with the Reality of Aid Network that I mentioned earlier, uh, because uh, within that, the, the, the analysis is, is coming from the lived experience of CSOs in the global south uh, with the aid system. But we need to respond to that and we need to organize ourselves in ways that, that can respond to that. And, and that would be the last point I would make here is that well, however effective uh, small and medium-sized organizations may be to, to shift the power, and I think that research demonstrated that some were, were clearly in, in moving in that direction, uh, we need to work in, in coalitions to su both support that as organizational change but for me, what's, what's still lacking is, is coalitions among uh, CSOs in the global north to, to really partner with those in the global south who are seeking a transformation in this aid system. And, and, and that's going to be a hard one because it will potentially threaten uh, the, the basis and foundations of, of the way we raise money, the, the size and scope of, of our organizations. Uh, and and the mandates that we pursue in the future. So th that's uh, a challenge for both, I think, INGOs, but also uh, small and medium. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is, is that I absolutely agree with everything that you've just said, Brian, but I think that the other big piece and the big challenge for us here in the North is that we need to be working collectively together, uh, you know, across the sector to really try to influence and, and push donor, our donor, as many others, you know, in, in many other countries are doing uh, to to change uh, the way that it operates. Because, I, and, you know, the, the, the other part of this is that, you know, NGOs, whether big or small, that are receiving institutional money from global affairs are responding to the direction and control directives that they put in place as well. So there's there's kind of a, a value chain that needs to be transformed and donors are very much part of that conversation and we need to be trying to influence and push them to actually uh, make the changes that are required to create a more enabling environment for this transformation to take place. Absolutely.
These are such important points, and I'm, I'm really happy that we're bringing them up. And, you know, throughout this conversation, what we've been talking about is opportunities and challenges and risks uh, facing the localization agenda. But my next question, what I'm really curious about is, what do you see as promising practices that are already happening in community-led, grassroots, localized approaches? And it would be wonderful if you can actually share a specific story. Specific story. Uh, I don't know whether I can share a specific story, Eliana, but I, what I can tell you is that what I've seen over the last uh, couple of years, but even, even beyond that, I think this is, um, is uh, a resurgence uh, of, uh, of conversation and a resurgence in focus on this issue. Uh, across the South, whether you're looking at Latin America or Africa or Asia, many Global Southern partners are, uh, are seizing the moment to really shed light on an issue that, that has been discussed for, you know, really years, if not decades, mm-hmm. uh, but which at this particular moment has, has kind of gained greater momentum because of the things that we talked about, you know, kind of the the the, the uprisings around uh, racial injustice, COVID, have really kind of uh, accelerated, if you will, um, the conversation that had been happening, you know, maybe more covertly or or more invisibly uh, mm. a- across the globe for many many years, right? Mm. So I do feel like that that um, it, it it's a moment for where we need to be continuing to pay attention to global Southern partners because they are speaking loud and clear. And what they're saying is, you know, we're, 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 we're living a moment where we're ready to seize, you know, control Mm -hmm. of our own destiny. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and we have the capacity and we have the skills, we have the knowledge Right. And, and, you know, we need, we, we're not saying, you know, you know, necessarily, you know, kind of abandon us or leave. They're saying, you know, work with us, but work with us differently. Right. And, and, and be a real partner uh, in the ways that, that uh, Brian described earlier. So I, I, I do think that there, it's, it's a special moment in that regard that like, there's more, I see like greater visibility and more openness to actually listening and hearing. And then here in the north, I think it's a special moment as well because we are all doing our own reconciliation with with um, our own legacy and our own uh, and our own culpability, if you will, if you want to mm. put it that way, or responsibility of really kind of owning, you know, uh, that the fact that uh, the way that we've structured, um, you know, our relationships have created uh, a power imbalance and have uh, led to the marginalization and exclusion of voices and of participation of those that need to be uh, really leading the, the, this process. Mm-hmm. Brian, I don't know whether you have anything to add on this. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, uh, I'm not, uh, I don't work directly with organizations that are, that are community-based. Uh, I, I generally work through uh, intermediary organizations in the global south that in turn have many community relationships. And I guess my own reflection on that is very much similar to Marlena, that that is where the knowledge and experience is. I mean, 
I wouldn't expect somebody to come from Bolivia to Nova Scotia here and, and really understand how the dynamics of, of civic engagement work in, in Nova Scotia, even though somebody could learn that over uh, a long period of time. Uh, often they would miss the nuance, the, the unspoken nuances. And, and, but we make the assumption that, that we can go and, and in, in a relatively short time, uh, understand all of that in another uh, country context, often country contexts that are fraught with, with severe issues of, of conflict and, and issues around uh, violence against women and, um, and ex extreme conditions of poverty. So I think we have to be um, modest, but also conscious of, uh, uh, much more conscious of our, our roles as actors in, in development and, and therefore um, support such partnerships as, as Merlin was just describing. My final question. <laughs> this has been an amazing, amazing conversation. And the way to best wrap up, I guess I would say is, what are top, maybe top two or three thoughts on how to move the localization agenda forward? And that's both internationally and domestically. Maybe I'll start and I'll pick up on Marlene's point a few minutes ago about uh, the importance of, of engaging uh, the donor, in our case, uh, generally, Global Affairs Canada, uh, in, in the ways in which uh, they have structured uh, the relationship with primarily us uh, as civil society actors uh, based in Canada, but also uh, the ways in which they are absent. Mm. from supporting uh, civil society in developing countries. Uh, according to the OECD DAC, only uh, slightly more than 4% of all the money that the Global Affairs Canada provides for civil society, and Global Affairs Canada is one of the largest supporters of civil society, mm -hmm. only 4% goes directly to civil society actors in the South. Oh. Now, for the all donors, uh, it's only 6%, 7%. Mm -hmm. But, you know, clearly there, there's room for diversifying the ways in which global affairs support civil society. Just recently, in July of this year, at the OECD Development Assistance Committee, which is a club of all the donors that uh, agree on, on good practice principles, they passed what's called a recommendation, which is a very strong instrument for the OECD DAC, on enabling civil society. And this recommendation, really, if you look at uh, its 28 uh, provisions, speaks to many of the issues that we have been talking about today. And uh, Global Affairs Canada will be held accountable to this recommendation over the coming years. But it's incumbent also on us as civil society in Canada and the councils and, and particularly Cooperation Canada to pick up on, on, on this recommendation and the clauses. So, for example, one of the recommendation clauses says that donors must uh, increase their support for leadership of Southern civil society, including core support for Southern civil society. They must also uh, trans, uh, look at the ways in which they finance uh, civil society in the donor countries, moving much more towards uh, programmatic and, and core uh, finance, multi-year core finance, 
which provides much greater flexibility. So this recommendation really is a, an important tool for us going forward. We also have a, a Senate motion that was uh, launched in the last session of Parliament and has been reintroduced that will uh, speak to uh, moving uh, the gov government regulations on what we referred to earlier as command and control, where we must be the owner of all the money always that goes outside the country. So these are important initiatives that I think in the future we must uh, pick up on on the external environment. But, you know, I think, you know, moving forward, we need to continue these type of discussions, both collectively, as we're doing now, but internally to, to all of our organizations. And then there are some interesting tools that are being developed. Uh, for example, there's a, a coalition of Southern CSOs called NEAR, N-E-A-R, that have uh, developed a, uh, a localization performance management system. Now that sounds quite technical, but if you look at it, it's basically a set of questions that you ask yourself about this, uh, about your relationships and the power dynamics. And, and similarly, uh, PARTOS, which is kind of the Dutch equivalent of uh, Cooperation Canada, has developed a power awareness tool. So there's a lot of conversations going on around the world on this topic. And I think, you know, we need to draw some of this uh, back into, into Canada and to uh, really uh, put our resources over the next couple of years uh, in, in sustained ways to, uh, to both facilitate some of this happening in Canada around our, our own organizations, but also to put our collective heads together, as we've said, uh, to really challenge some of the uh, broader power dynamics in the aid system. Yeah, in, in terms of, for me, I think um, the, 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 what, what lies ahead is really coming together as a civil society. I think there's internal and external challenges. Internally, I, as we talked about, I think, you know, we all, every organization individually, but also collectively, and individuals within those organizations, particularly leadership and boards, have a big responsibility in terms of uh, ensuring that the, the dialogue continues and that they're actually putting resources behind, uh, you know, making the changes that they need to be making uh, at the level of governance and at the level of process uh, and, and policy within organizations so that they actually um, get their own houses in order, that they're not... Uh, uh, talking about these issues as, as something that is happening out there in terms of just their programmatic work, uh, but it's actually, um, it, it needs to be uh, alignment between what's happening uh, in, in their own internal organization, in, internally in their organizations. And so getting their houses in order and getting that housekeeping done, I think is very much essential if, um, if there's going to be any kind of uh, uh, alignment, as I said, between uh, what's being said and what they're actually doing. Uh, so that's a, that's a tall order for many organizations who are, you know, scrambling to understand, okay, what does this mean for us? And how does it transform, you know, our, you know, the way we do uh, our communications, for example, you know, how we gather images. Yes. Uh, what are the policies for uh, field trips, you know, if they do field trips for donors? Uh, what kind of images can they use? And, you know, and, and, and what language should accompany um, donor communication or fundraising material? 
that's a big tall order for many organizations that you know uh, that survive on on fundraising you know face to face fundraising uh, digital fundraising um so changing uh, the language and educating at the same time uh, donors as to why you know uh, we can't uh, be depicting this 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 image this imagery of you know of of this of the global south as as um as almost uh, you know recipients of our charity right and in fact uh, making our communication material material that is reflective of our human rights commitments and the fact that you know uh, those recipient people receiving aid are actually you know their rights holders and that you know we're trying to uphold their human rights uh, so it, 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 there's a tension and it, there's always a struggle in terms of, you know, uh, especially by fundraisers, you know, who really struggle to say, you know, to deliver on, on, uh, on raising money and, and, and the imagery and language we use. So, you know, that's one big tall order. And then, of course, there's the whole programmatic stuff of how we develop programming, right? And uh, who, who, who designs the program, uh, what, what, what goes into the program, what stays out, you know, how is, is that driven just by the North and then in turn by the donor who kind of sets the parameters of what they want to see. And then the INGO does a knowledge translation of that and works with country offices. And then they in turn work with local partners and, and who ultimately end up just being, you know, deliverers or implementers. But the, the reality is that the program is designed, managed, evaluated by people in the North. And so all of that, I think, is, is, is an internal challenge for, you know, big, big and small organizations here in the, in the North. But I also think we need to get back to being connected uh, with each other. I mean, I think we're all, everyone talks about being super busy. Everybody is, you know, works long hours. Everybody has burned out. But we've forgotten to talk to each other. Like, uh, right. you know, we, yeah. we we are so busy in the day-to-day -day putting out all the fires that come up that um, there isn't enough time left for us to talk to one another and to do the solidarity building uh, that Brian talked about before that is so needed um, amongst, like, us here in the North. Like, we need to be working collectively and collaboratively, uh, you know, being generous with our time. Uh, trusting each other to share in, you know, to share our learnings so that we can learn from each other and 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 build up off each other. Um, so I think that piece is really missing, and we need to do more of that because I think there is experiences uh, that we could learn from, for example, from smaller organizations to some of the experience potentially of some of the bigger ones, right? right. Uh, and so I think that there is space for us to be doing so much more of that if we're going to be effective in continuing to build momentum around this issue. And then of course, externally, I think there's an opportunity also for us to be playing a role of making those connections with the global, uh, what's happening globally, right? I think that there's a lot of uh, good examples uh, from other countries uh, and that we, and from other organizations in, in whether in the global South or in the global North that are, that are doing good work. And we should be also connecting and talking and dialoguing with them in order to be able to have this be a global agenda. Mm. It's not just a Canadian agenda, but it's actually a global agenda. It's we're talking about a systemic change and systemic change requires that we pull all of these levers that are not only national, but also international. 
and 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 making them work in concert with one another. Absolutely, because we need to look at local priorities, but then link them to global goals, right? Exactly. Sure. I would just say that I'm very pleased that OCIC is taking up this agenda in multiple ways, uh, including these uh, podcasts, but also in their various uh, fora with with their members and and improve and increasing capacity to to support their members around this. And I think uh, hopefully that's a model for others and other uh, coalitions uh, to do likewise. Uh, because I think we're moving very quickly into a, a dynamic world where change is happening often beyond our control, not least the consequence of a pandemic. And, and so um, having these fora to discuss these issues, but also launch um, reflection within our organizations is incredibly important at this uh, stage in our, uh, in our development. Yeah, and maybe in closing as well, to you know, thank OCIC for the opportunity to have this this conversation, and hopefully, it's the 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 first of many conversations that we will continue to have, and that we should be having with each other. Um, and also to to I think, you know, we need this these kinds of moments uh, to begin to think about how we, um, you know, collectively influence uh, change uh, with our donor. Uh, I think, you know, I think organizations need to be supported to be able to do the documentation and systematization and learning. Uh, you know, there's, we all, we all believe in learning and we all believe that that's, it's needed, but there's never enough resources, uh, whether financial or people allocated to it. And it's so needed in this moment, if we're going to build off of each other and benefit from the lessons learned Uh, we need to be able to have funding that supports those kinds of efforts. Thank you both so much. I mean, you're both thanking OCIC for opening this forum, but to be honest, I think I speak for the entirety of OCIC when I say that we are grateful that we can speak with you, Marlene, and with you, Brian, about power, localization, and shifting our thoughts around what localization means and what it means to really embrace and listen to local priorities and have that inform, first of all, national policy change, but also global priorities and global goals. So we are very grateful and fortunate to have had this conversation with you and to have many more. I want to thank you both for joining us today. I've personally learned so much from our conversation and there is a lot our audience can take away by listening to this episode. There are many more coming up in the rest of season two, so please stay tuned and we look forward to furthering dialogue on localization. Thank you, Marlene. Thank you, Brian. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you, Eliana. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And to our audience, thank you for tuning in. Make sure to catch our next episode as we continue to share other stories from our OCIC membership community. The Ontario Council for International Cooperation is an expanding community of members working for global social justice, human dignity, and participation for all. Join us. Visit ocic.on.ca to learn more.